we have a little bit of work to do. And all of the intellectualizing on the rightness of it all, like we're right, you're wrong. We haven't done the work that's required individually for us to be able to open our hearts big enough to hold someone who we don't agree with. Until and unless we do that, like if you don't do that, you can't tell a story big enough for everybody. The most important thing about a story is that it be authentic and that it connects. And if you are lying, then it it doesn't. The species is at a choice point. Will this be our evolutionary crash or our evolutionary leap? My name is Gibran Rivera. I'm a facilitator, and this is my podcast. Here, I introduce you to remarkable leaders who are devoting their lives to the evolution of consciousness and culture. In this episode, I introduce you to my friend, Anasa Troutman. Anasa is a writer, producer, and entrepreneur. She is the CEO of Culture Shift Creative, where she works to build and execute strategies for artists and organizations that are aligned with her vision of a loving world and aligned with her belief in creativity as a pathway to personal, community, and global transformation. Anasa has many other roles. She's the first executive director of the historic Claiborne Temple in Memphis. And she serves as strategic advisor and executive producer for her longtime friend, India Ari. Anasa just produced India's amazing video, Steady Love. You have to make sure you see it. I don't even remember how I met Anasa. But I know that we have some amazing people in common, including our friend Malia Lasu, who you've heard from on the podcast. We've known each other for a long time, and we have seen each other grow. Anasa and I vibe on the same wavelength. We hold a passionate commitment to love and to culture as the medicine of social transformation. I cannot wait for you to get to know her better. Enjoy the podcast. Anasa, what a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful moment. What a, I am so happy to be on this uh, podcast with you. Thank you for saying yes. Oh, I would never not say yes to you, Gibran. Never. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to remember that. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> you all heard it. You all heard it. Uh, I am so happy. It's been a while since we connect. I but know. every time we connect, it's, uh, it's so good, juicy, mm-hmm. powerful. I feel like like we are definitely sharing. Yeah. Every time is like the first time and the last time all at once. Uh, uh, that is glorious. <laughs> see, I can already feel where this one is going. <laughs> Before, yep. like, I want I want people to know you. I want people to know your story. Oh. I want people to get a sense of the light that emanates from you. Mm, thank you. And I think a good way to start is with what are you up to these days like what is the what is the work what is the experiment what is the project that is turning you on yeah wow that is going to take about four and a half hours to tell you but i'm going to do my best so (laughs) um thank you for having me you know i adore you so the 
request to come and talk to you was like, oh, duh, of course. Yes, that's going to be amazing. So thank you for having me, number one. Uh, I am honored, deeply honored. As am I. Hmm. So what am I working on? So I, um, I think since I saw you last or talked to you last, I actually started a new company and it's called Culture Shift Creative and Culture Shift Creative is a cultural strategy firm. And it really is the place that I built to take all of the things that I think that I know that I believe and that I want for myself in the world and put them all in one place and build an ecosystem out of all those things. And so um, we have a model, we have all these wonderful things, and there's a constellation of about seven projects, but there's probably two of them that are that have my attention right now in a really powerful way. Um, one of them is called Shoe Electricity, and it is an ecosystem of technology, creativity, and personal development for Black, Brown, and Indigenous girls. Um, (laughs) we have really two components one of them is an in-person program where they get you know curriculum based learning around all those things I mentioned technology skills um, the art of creativity because you know what I I have actually been sitting on this idea for probably 15 years and I never did it and the this um, kind of the rise in conversations about girls and technology and wanting them to have the skill of technology was really exciting to me because I'm a total nerd and it was um, made me nervous because when you teach someone a skill, that skill often um, is used in service to someone else's vision. And I wanted for those girls to be able to say, I have these skills, but I also know how to cultivate my own vision. And it was so Mm -hmm. important to me that we bring in the arts to be able to show them like, yes, you have these skills and here's how you are, how, how you can be creative with those skills and create something of your own. And then the personal development side is about really making sure that they know that they're worthy of their dreams and they're worthy of their ideas. And you don't have to suffer in silence with a head full of ideas and a heart full of hopes. You actually have the right to say, I have an idea, let's make it happen and manifest it in the physical space. And so that's one component. But the other component is the part that is really exciting to me. And we're building a media platform for um, content that's built by and for girls that is age appropriate, empowering, but not in a corny way. So it's like still super hot and engaging and all that. But it's like built with them in mind. And because we have a youth leadership council and a test kitchen kind of of girls already, they're actually informing the creation of the content. So it's they are both the the generator, the creator, the user, the distributor, and we're really building a, an ecosystem that they actually can own. And, can, and control and actually build and distribute their own media. We've been, um, of course, doing all this fundraising, but we've also been talking to a lot of production houses in LA. So folks who are, folks whose names that you would know that I won't say now because we're still, you know, um, in the early stages it. and I don't want to blow up this spot, but folks who you would be excited about who were saying like, here are the ideas that these girls have. Will you partner with us and bring your acumen as a producer or as a writer or as a director? And instead of giving us money, would you give us in-kind producing services and take this girl and her idea and manifest a short film, manifest a series, manifest a podcast, manifest some music or whatever the thing is that the girl wants, right? Because it's really all about them. 
And so that's the one thing that has my attention. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. This is, yeah. it is, it is electrifying. This is phenomenal. And yes. given everything I know about you to just have your life force behind something like this is a gift to yeah. the world and to this historical moment. So thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited about it. So the second thing that has my attention is a project um, that actually had me move to Memphis, Tennessee, which is where I am living right now. And this is a building that's called uh, Historic Claiborne Temple. I remember this. Yes. So Claiborne Temple is um, historically famous for being the organizing headquarters for the 1968 sanitation worker strike in Memphis, which was Martin Luther King's last campaign and the campaign that brought him to Memphis when he was assassinated. So if you've seen those I am a man signs, the picket signs that say, that say I am a man, that is that campaign. And so this building, which is one of the most gorgeous buildings I've ever seen in my life, um, was in ruin. Um, the the roof caved in, the truss broke and the roof caved in. There was a big hole in the wall, rain. It rained inside for years. The floor rotted out, the pews rotted out, the stained glass crumbled. And I'm <laughs> I've become a historic preservationist. So I'm now restoring that building, which I've never done anything like this before. Of course. And and <laughs> and I got there because they wanted they wanted to tell the story of the work that they that had happened there. And so I went there to produce a musical called Union, the musical about the sanitation worker strike, about um King, about the building, about Memphis. And of course, I walked in the door and my brain exploded because I'm always thinking about how to translate stories into social impact. That's all I ever do. So I walked in there and I'm like, oh, well, if we're going to tell this story, then we need to do this and that and this and do this with the community and restore. Why would you restore the building and not restore this neighborhood? And how about this? And what about economic development? And what about? So I'm like, my brain is all over the place. And by the time we finished producing the musical for MLK 50 last year was the 50th anniversary commemoration of MLK's assassination. Mm. By the time we finished that process, the folks who were managing and owned the building were basically like, so we don't know what to do with this, but clearly you do. Can you move here and just take this over? And so for the past, since almost a year now, I've been like learning about construction, learning about historic preservation, learning about community development, learning about real estate development, and all of that in the context of translating stories to social impact. So I'm like, what are the stories that happened in this place? How do those stories show up programmatically and in enterprise? And how do we make sure that the sanitation workers' goal, which was economic empowerment, actually happens in this neighborhood because it still hasn't happened yet. 50 years, 51 years now later, they still did not get what they were striking for in right. full, in, right, in full. And the neighborhood that Claiborne Temple is in, it was decimated. Mm. So like the story of that, the, the real, the longer story is that the neighborhood is also the neighborhood where the first African-American millionaire lived. And there's a whole long story that I won't go into, but it's so good. There's an article you can read. It's called Memphis is Burning. And it tells the story of Robert Church, how he built his empire, and then how the white power structure basically, not basically, actually um, dismantled it intentionally to the point where they burned the man's house down. Wow. And so the impact of that is still present in the neighborhood where Claiborne Temple is. And it's the poorest 
zip code in all of Tennessee. And so, like, to think about the ecosystem and to think about this jump that King was trying to get folks to make in the last year of his life from talking just about race to talking about race, class, and militarism and how that leap still hasn't happened and the opportunity in Claiborne Temple and the work that we're doing there, both as storytellers and as um, really world builders, to be able to actually do that to actually make that leap and actually really for once and for all um talk about class in a meaningful way but do it in a way that's not tactical that's really about shifting our culture and creating a world in that in in those few acres that we have access to that actually honors our full humanity our full dignity and all of that means for who we are like in our physical spaces and what that relationship is, is to economics and policy and you know community practice and love and art making and storytelling and all, all of that stuff. Wow. And I said, this is amazing. I have so many things to ask. <laughs> ask away. <laughs> I, I'm going to start with a comment and an observation. I just got an affirmation, if you will. Yes. Of, of, of this commitment to a location, to a physical structure, right? Yeah. I, I, I remember... Uh, many years ago, starting to do activism work here in Boston. Yeah. And I worked at a place called La Alianza Hispana in mm-hmm. Roxbury. Mm-hmm. And La Alianza was the only place, the only Latino nonprofit or agency that owned its location, yeah. right? And a big part of the discourse was like, we don't own our, we don't own our land. We don't own our lo- our place. Yeah. But then you would look around the neighborhood and that was actually an incomplete statement mm-hmm. because our people build churches. That's right. Right? <laughs> and they own them churches. That's right. Right? So there's, there is something right. to that commitment. And, and then I tie it to, um, there was a bank, a European bank that's trying to be a conscious bank. I think it's called Triodos Bank. I heard about it many years ago. And they weathered the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And they weathered it by following a very simple investment rule. Mm. Only invest in things that are real. Because, you know, it's all a financial, like, speculative game of the psyche as opposed to, like, this place you can see. Yeah. I feel like there's something there that you are holding and moving that I just, I just want to, I just really want to affirm. I don't have a, a full sense of what it is, but it feels yeah. right. It's actually something know? that I think about a lot because I have never, I have never participated um, at this depth in a place. Not since I was, not since my early music industry days. So when I was in Atlanta and I owned a label and it was really a local scene. That's so funny. I never see. I knew something new was going to happen. I never have thought of that time in my life as doing like local work. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Well, I need to, I'm going to, I had to spend some time thinking about that, but um, not since my younger days when I lived in Atlanta, have I been so committed to one place. <clears throat> and it's been interesting because, you know, my, my first artist I worked with 
got famous. So that was like a global situation. My first campaign I ever worked on. Who was that artist? Oh, India Ari. <laughs> oh, oh, I just needed to hear that, even though I knew it. Her new video just came out. I executive produced it. It is so good. It is called Steady Love, and it has David Banner in it, and it is amazing. Everybody go watch go it. Go watch it. So um, in my first campaign I ever did was a presidential campaign. So it's like, again, I'm doing all this work at a national and sometimes international scale. And I didn't have any relationship with what it meant to really go deep in one place. And I've been now in Memphis um, back and forth for two years, but permanently for a year now. And going into that building every day on that same two acres of land every day and thinking about that space and, and intentionally about what that space means for us every day is a, is a really trippy experience. And it's, it's changing my relationship to land in general, but my relationship to that piece of land is blossoming in a really beautiful way. And it's like, has me in a conversation about land ownership and land development and land sometimes leave it alone as reparations and thinking about what land has to do with the, with the truth telling the healing and repair of the communities who we know have been ravaged by this idea of the American dream and what cost was paid for that dream and what it means for us to reclaim land and space and sovereignty in those spaces as our, um, not not even as a form of resistance, because I'm actually not interested in resisting anymore, but as a, as a form of, uh, as a way to thrive. Beautiful. Right? And, and, um, and then like the complexity of thinking about how we do that in a way that is, um, grounded in a, in a, in a spiritual truth when we know that that land is not even belongs to the people who we're reclaiming it from. So when you think about indigenous communities, you think about, you know, the original sin of America, which was not slavery. It was actually genocide and the stealing of land. How am I as a black woman, how do I interact with that story and how do I interact with that truth? And what's my responsibility in that restoration as I'm looking for my own restoration? So it's being in this in this city, particularly in Memphis, which is so black and so mm. beautiful, right? And like and also very poor and also very sad. There's a sadness here that people have not let go of from the assassination and the murder of Martin Luther King. There is a, a focus on his um, absence and mm. his uh, being cut down, which, by the way, is literally four tenths of a mile from Claiborne Temple, L- Lorraine Motel, where he was murdered. And there's a heaviness here um, that never was healed, that's never been looked at, never been healed, never been addressed. Mm-hmm. And so all of those things are present when I when I'm here thinking in Memphis, and my my goal and my focus on healing as a pathway um, to joy, frankly, is really grounded in that, in that, in that couple of acres and all that stained glass and all that wood and stone. And it's uh, something I've never experienced before. 
Thank you so much for sharing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm moved by it. I want to I want to go back to a statement you almost said in passing about Atlanta <laughs> and local organizing. Yes, uh, and and to say maybe maybe make a couple of quick statements prior to which is I wonder what the Christian tradition has to teach us about you know what is our relate the Christian relationship to Calvary. Right, mm-hmm. as like, a, like how is Dr. King alive? Right, in, in, in the dream that you're moving forward, right, and how does how does the place of his death becomes a place of resurrection as a way okay. as opposed to that's an interesting idea. Back to the land, though. Yeah, back to the land. Wait, can I, I interrupt you? I want to interrupt you because that's exactly that's how that's how I think about the work. I'm like, if if the dream of Dr. King died here, then it also must be resurrected here. And if we can, if we can, if we can switch people's focus from the balcony where he died to the church where he came to work, because the thing that he saw there, the reason why he came to Memphis, the reason why for the first time in Memphis, he joined a movement and did not lead it was because he saw the hope for his work and for America in those men and women who were doing that work at Claiborne Temple as a sanitation worker strike. And that is still alive, very much alive. And so I always am thinking about how we can not only um, revive, resurrect the ideals in the work of Dr. King, but like how we also shift the focus to the fact that it wasn't it wasn't his work. It was the work of of um, the sanitation workers. It was the work of the sanitation workers' wives. It was the work of the community members, and it was the work of Dr. James Lawson, who was the preeminent strategist around um, around nonviolence and direct action for the entire movement. By the time James Lawson met Dr. King in the 50s, he had already been studying nonviolence for 10 years. And he was like in his 20s. He has traveled all over India, traveled all over Africa, and was like, he was the brain behind what had became nonviolent direct action. So much, something so beautiful about, I think, our generation and I'm putting us as both kind of Gen Xers. Is we have we have worked to to recapture the story of the civil rights to remember that there was a collective of people. That's right. And I think that's that's an important thing to hold. And thank you for bringing okay. that in. I wanna go ahead. No, no, it sounds yeah, like you have something. I was. I just need to say that when I talk to Reverend Lawson now, who is now 92 years old, mm. he is very clear that we are not to call that time, the civil rights movement. Well, thank you. Say more about that. Okay, that's what I said. I said, what, sir? What? He said, you can call it the King Parks movement. And then he said, what we were not doing was trying to achieve civil rights. The movement for civil rights has um, existed as long as humanity has existed. Everyone is always trying to find their place, their right relation to each other. What we were doing was trying to manifest the kingdom of Jesus and the liberation of Black people on planet Earth in America, specifically in the American South. Ooh, I just felt I that. Know. I know! Wow, that is I know. potent. Thank I you. Know. The wisdom of the elders, huh? Listen, he was like, "Don't stop saying that. Don't you ever call the civil rights movement ever again. Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm so sorry, sir. I will not. The King Parks movement, sir, yes. <laughs> that is so. That is lovely. I I wanna. I, I still want to get to Atlanta, but I also wanted to say, 
there's we'll 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 meander our way there. Um, because I just also wanted to affirm this piece about land and, and also mm-hmm. the tension that you uplifted. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was just reading a great piece on what would reparation actually look like. Like if we say we're gonna get reparations, mm-hmm. what if what is a technical process, right? And yeah. most people launch from the broken promise That's of right. 40, 40 acres and a mule, and a mule right? Land, land. I just came back from a a magical like life shifting time with the Gulagishi people mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. South Carolina. Yeah, you had a good time. That was beautiful. It was, and we were there with. In the, I was there with a large group, including uh, a group of indigenous women. Nice. And so it was amazing. And even to talk with them after about that connection, how they were relating to that reclaiming of black land as yes. indigenous women. Yes. I mean, and, and, it, and they held, I mean, it was all goodness and beauty, right? Like the holding of the conversation was really special mm. and, 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 and healing and open. It was, uh, so anyway, just kind of really want to honor yeah. uh, uh, your inquiry and, and, mm, and the way thank where, you. where your spirit is moving you. Mm-hmm. When you talk about Atlanta mm-hmm. and this label and how this might be the first time you call it like local work, I think what comes up for me is 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 a path or an inquiry, a tension that you and I have walked together, which is. <laughs> uh, you know, the culture of the activist, mm-hmm. right? Versus the culture yeah. <laughs> or culture or yeah. art yeah. or, right? And and to be being people who care deeply mm-hmm. for, for social change, social transformation at the level of objective conditions, yeah. concern with policy, all of that, but really often questioning, right? how we're going about that work and the limitations <laughs> of that approach. And, and so you end up with somebody, right, that is literally making culture in place, not even calling that local work, right? Because yeah. it doesn't fit traditional, like, organizing definitions. Yeah. And so when you, when you remind me of the name of, 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 the, of kind of the umbrella you're working on, mm-hmm. the culture, what? Mm-hmm. The, so I had, uh, um, I had two entities back then. One was called Groovement, which was the um, kind of the co- artist collective side. And then I had a record label that was called Earthseed Music that I named after um, Octavia Butler's book. Of course you did. <laughs> right. Way back in, Jesus, 1990-something. So beautiful. And the, and the current umbrella that you're working under, you oh, told right me in now the beginning. It's called Culture Shift Creative. Right. Yes. And so when you said those words, you started talking about this work with the girls. Yes. And all this. I thought about a recent experience that I've just had. Well, I've known the work of Dr. Sarah Lewis for mm-hmm. a while. I don't know. Uh, say more. So Dr. Sarah Lewis, uh, in fact, the, the Aperture magazine with Dr. King, his father and his son that you see, uh-huh. that you commented on earlier, yes. uh, outside of the podcast. Yeah. But um, that is, she's this 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 public intellectual professor now at Harvard, 
who really poses like the idea of the image, right, as central to shaping our imagination, right? Yeah. And so she begins to explain it with talking about F- Frederick Douglass mm-hmm. was the most photographed person of his time, wow. right? And this to him was very intentional, mm. right? He understood, right, the power of the image, mm-hmm. even then, right, to kind of shift a mindset. Absolutely. And one thing that Dr. Sarah Lewis has spoken of, uh, and, and folks, uh, there's a vision and justice curriculum that I encourage you to look up online. You can also find it on my website. I link to it on my website. But one of the things she she spoke about years back when I met her, and I never forget, at, at a convening I facilitate called Creative Change, she spoke about how the activist might come at you like like forward, right, <laughs> face to face, usually aggressively, often with a hammer, right. And aesthetics sneaks up on you, mm-hmm. right? It grabs you from the side, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I think contemporarily, uh, I, you know, to this day, my fav- one of my favorite T-shirts is, uh, is Fabiana Rodriguez has this gorgeous butterfly, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a bright yellow T-shirt. There's a gorgeous monarch butterfly on it painted by her. And so you see the T-shirt and you say, this is beautiful, right? But then underneath the words say, migration is beautiful right so first you see the beauty let's say you hate migrants right but then like the beauty captured you like it shook you right there's something about the cultural intervention from douglas images right Mm -hmm. Uh, to to all of our all of our in the culture that has allowed us as people to survive right and even to thrive it's just uh it's a different point of intervention. And one of the things I so love and admire about what you're up to Thank you. is that this is what you're committed to. Well, you know, I never have ever called myself an activist because I don't think that's what I am. And I don't think I ever have been. And my entry point into social impact work was not activism or organizing or politics or any of that. It was just as a person. It was a person who has a who has a deeply held set of beliefs and a deeply um, held vision of what the world should look like from my point of view and um, the dissonance that came with the fact that the world looked so not like I thought it should. So not like I thought it should. And because I grew up in a house where my parents took agency when they wanted the world to look different, they did something. So I didn't come from a house where people were like, oh, let's get along to get along and this is just what it is. And like, that's not how I grew up. I grew up in a house with people who were like, oh, uh uh-uh. I don't like this. <clears throat> and they and they created a world with their friends for me, my sister, and all my all, my, all of their kids, right? So they built a world for us to live in where we were safe, where we were clear about who we were and what our power was and what was possible for us. And so when I, you know, when we when people get college age, you get activated. You look around, and you're like, holy crap, the world, this is what the world looks like. Now it would look like in my house. Okay, well, what am I gonna do about this? And I knew um, that art and creativity and culture were the were the route. I knew that instinctively, and I knew it experientially through through what I experienced in my own home growing up. And so um, I have always, always, always started with the story, always, whether the story is in the form of a song or a video or a 
film or TV or a book or whatever, even as a kid, I constantly consumed books and film. Constantly. I would just like literally <laughs> I was a, I was the person who learned how to use a record player at three years old and would just be in the in the in the living room with some headphones on, listen to Stevie Wonder or Quincy Jones or Minnie Ripperton or any any number of people. John Coltrane, any number of people. That's what I, I've been been doing that. And I, when I got older, I read and I read every book I could ever get my hands on. I would just post up somewhere. And that night I would go in my room and I would make mixtapes and write all the lyrics down. So I was clear about what they were saying. Like I've always been, when I was in middle school, I used to go to the movies by myself after school. Like that's, I've always been a consumer of stories and I know what they do for me. I know the worlds that they take me to. I know the possibilities that they, that they rile up in my own soul. And all I've done now is now be able to build a system to harness those openings or harness those, in, those inspirations so that you don't go home, forget that you were inspired, forget that you wanted to be different and wake up next week the same as you were last week. All I've done is said, like, how do we take the power of those stories and make sure that people actually have a chance to transform in the ways that they're inspired to once those stories get in their bodies? Oh, my God. This is magic <laughs> and medicine. I have to ask you the question. Um did you keep up with Game of Thrones? Are you a Game of Thrones person? Game of, how dare you ask me that? I'm insulted by your doubts, <laughs> sir. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good and clear answer. Thank you. And so you're the first person I interviewed oh, since the great show's finale. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about, but we can't yeah. go down that rabbit hole. I do yeah. need to talk to you. About that moment at the very, you yes. know, at the end, when Tyrion yes. Lannister makes the yes. argument Story. for Brandon right. Stark. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> what brings people together? <laughs> so, I want to say first that Tyrion had my first, my favorite two moments of that entire episode. <clears throat> first, when he was standing over the bodies of his fallen brother and sister, that was the most beautiful moment of the entire episode for me. And two, when he said that, what he said about story. Now, I am not a fan of Bran Stark. I was kind of mad that he ended up yeah. on the throne. Okay. But the reason why I left satisfied is because I couldn't argue with the argument. I was like, he's right. He's. God dang it, he's right. <laughs> because there's nothing like a good story. Nothing more powerful. Right. You know, I saw a meme that showed alternative great stories and it like had everybody else on the show had a good story, better story than Fred. <laughs> but, but the argument for story matters and the fact, even more so, that he holds all of the stories ever. That's right. right, all of them, he's, from the past, present, and future. He's the keeper of the story. He's the keeper of the story. And that that is significant, right? That is significant. That is what keeps people together. Sometimes I think about, you know, when I think about the rise of the right, right? Huh? Yeah, listen, 
We've been saying this for years, ever since I ever interacted with any political person. The reason why the right has been so successful is because they are masters of story and masters of culture. They know how to get under the details and get down to the core values and express them in such a way that makes people feel connected and makes people feel alive and makes people feel seen and makes people feel like they are part of something bigger than themselves. Folks on the left are horrid at that. Well, we we want people to we want people to be really intellectual and like give up their lives for abstraction. Yeah. We want to be story. we want to be right, not connected. Right, that's right. That's right. So I think about uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And like the, you know, the stories, like you know, you first need food, right? Of course, right? And you need some shelter, and eventually you get to the meaning and then self, you know, self realization. And I think that that that, that is generally speaking, the right hierarchy, except that those lines are much more permeable, right? (laughs) That we actually need them all. So for example, uh, the left might look at poor white people in one of these states and be like, well, why are they voting against their economic interests? But one reason is that our story has shattered theirs, right? Like, we, they believed that this country was the best country in the world. They weren't seeing yeah. internal oppression. They weren't seeing external oppression. They believed that their religion is the only path to truth. And they weren't seeing all the ways in which it was actually contradicting itself. And so we come with our, like, postmodern ideologies. We tear apart, right? the stories that give them meaning and then we expect them to agree with us, right? Without providing an alternative story, right? We need a larger shared story. That's right. It cannot be my country right or wrong. You can't be a person of color and be like my country right or wrong. Like that's actually really hard given our history, right? Yeah. Uh, but that's all they got. <laughs> that's all they got. And so we don't have, we haven't been able to tell. The best we come is like, you all suck. Uh, <laughs> right? Like that's, that's mm-hmm. all. You suck. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's actually not an engaging way to get people on your boat. Actually, it's not. Are you sure? I don't, I I don't mean, think it the works. The thing is, everybody wants the same thing. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to feel like they belong somewhere. That's right. And when we um, other people and then ask them to join us, there's no space for belonging. That's right. So we have a little bit of work to do. I mean, I mean, starting with the fact that we actually think that there are folks who are other. <laughs> like, that's our work. Our work is like, yeah. I don't agree and I, you still belong to me. I don't agree with you and I still love you. I don't agree with you and I still am going to create space for all of us. That is, we have to start there. We haven't done in all of the intellectualizing on the rightness of it all. Like we're right, you're wrong. We haven't done the the work that's required um, individually for us to be able to open our hearts big enough to hold someone who we don't agree with. That's right. That's and right. Until, until and unless we do that, like if you don't do that, you can't tell a story big enough for everybody because the story, the most important thing about a story is that it be authentic and that it connects. And if you are lying, 
then it, it doesn't. Well, we don't we don't seem to believe we need to. We seem to feel like, you know what? We got it so bad for so long. We're still getting screwed. So no. So no, we're not going to open up. <laughs> and yeah, not that's, not how, that's not how it works. It's, it's not how it works. It's self-defeating. Yeah. Right? It's self-defeating. I also think it's like that is actually the pathway to the healing of that feeling is mm-hmm. this work. I, was, uh, I spent some time um, with um, a group from MSC, Calvin and Julie and Tafara was there and a bunch of us. We're out in North Carolina at a at a retreat on a former slave plantation, which is a whole nother story that we don't have time for. Holler at me later. But one of the things that came up, because we were, of course, like surrounded by cotton fields, and, we're, you know, there's feelings when you're surrounded by cotton fields. And Tafara was saying, what if our healing requires that we return to the place where our wounding is, that we return to the field? And we started talking about healed in the field, and what it means for us to go back to those places. And Calvin brought up a Rumi poem that mm. says, the wound is where the light enters. Achoo. And if we don't go back to those places of wounding, then we actually are never going to be able to reach the light and be the kind of people that can create for all. And so I'm, I hate, I'm sorry to break it to you. But we can't, like, you can't, but that's in life. Like, if you're talking, you're experiencing childhood trauma or a bad breakup or any, like, whatever it is, like, you have to, you have to be able to confront that pain, process it, metabolize it, and come back on the other side, um, back with your joy and your life and your humanity in order for you to be able to do anything good. That's right. You know, and as I think you know um, from our earlier conversations, that uh, that I've been working with sacred medicines for for yes. for a while now, right? And it's a very important part of my path. And yes, I hold space for people in it, and there's there different medicines get you to different places, but there's a particular one that is especially good for post traumatic mm-hmm. stress, right? And 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 the reason for that is is that it makes your heart so big, hmm. right? You expand so much That's right. that you are able to go back to the traumatic experience, mm-hmm. right? And and look at it yeah. with a big, open and fearless heart, yeah. right? Because what's happening is what is tr- post-traumatic stress is like the fear of mm-hmm. having the thing happen again. again. That's right. And so you let, live a life that is shut down. Yeah angry, demanding yeah. a justice that will actually never fulfill you, nope. right? Until that heart opens up, right? Yes. Yes. I um, I did a TED Talk this year. Yes, you did. And that is like, that is exactly what that talk is about. It's, it's a, about a lot of things, but it's really about like how the fact that justice will never satisfy you. <laughs> Like, that thing, like the correction of the mistake, like there is no, especially at this point in the in the history of humanity, there is nothing that anyone can do to take away the scourge that Black people, Latino people, Indigenous people, women, get queer folks. Like there's nothing that we can do to take that away. Mm-hmm. There's no, like what is the point of spending all of our lives working for just for justice that is going to be like, and there, hmm, good. <laughs> and not, 
gets you to the place where you really want to be to, which is about being joyful and to experience life in its fullness and to be able to feel like you have the right to have dreams and have those dreams manifested and have relationship with people and to be joyful. Like, oh my God, how much, it just feels good just saying that. Yes, it does. And it was beautiful to watch you say it. It's the talk up from activism to joy. Is that the name of the, the talk? It's, it's called From Justice to Joy. From Justice to Joy. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a part of the part of I, I watched it and I'm going to bring up some lines from it in a minute. But um, <laughs> what, uh, one of the but going back to Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. right? going back to the Dragon Queen. Yes. Right. Traumatized. Yeah. They won. Right. Yep. Uh, committed to justice, right? And told a story about it her entire life. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But the justice mm-hmm. that she was seeking is the one that justified that's the right. burning that's of right. a city, that's right? right. That's right. And that's, it really made me think about a lot of the energy that is in these spaces right now that are demanding justice. It is total Daenerys dragon queen energy. Let's burn it all down. And that's why I'm like, why are y'all acting like that was not a thing? Like, people are like, she would never, are you serious? Yes, she, that's exactly what, that's the path she was on from the first episode. That's the path that she was on from the beginning. She was never going to not go too far. Right. Well, it's amazing because we, we, we we're pretty happy with a person that had absolute power and a weapon of mass destruction Hi. as long as we like them. Hi. <laughs> Hi. No accountability, okay? Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's right. Mm-hmm. So this beautiful talk from Justice to Joy, I encourage our listeners to, to hear it in, and we'll link it in our show notes. Uh, but here's some of the ca- things that capture uh, towards the end. This path of love is not easy. <laughs> the path of love is hard. We are too attached, right, to our ego, right, to make enough space for all of our humanity. Right? Yeah. This transformation requires a willingness to let go of our own ego long enough to see our own humanity mm. so that we can see the humanity in other people. This is not soft and easy love. This is the love of courage, right? This is a lot. It, it, it includes knowing all the places in which you're afraid mm. and hurt, right? It means seeing everybody as a brilliant, radiant soul. And I know that when you say everybody, <laughs> I mean it. you mean everybody, right? Uh-huh. It also means paying for the past. That's right. It means restoration, right? Yeah. It means that we cannot ignore what has happened. Right, and then you say something that I've been working with for a while. It keeps coming <laughs> up, right? And it's like it this joy that you're calling for requires radical truth, right? Yeah, and that includes looking at the darkness. Yes, looking at the pain. Yeah, holding it all, and I think that's a big part of what we all need to turn to become mm-hmm. aware of as we because part of what happens in this in this call for safety. And let me be clear: I need to pause here, right? As a man, right. Uh, so I, I, I am committed, right, to spaces 
where people are safe, right? Mm-hmm. But I think what people often mean is, I don't want to be uncomfortable. That's right. right? I don't want to feel, I disagree with you. Yeah. And then they're using the word triggered to refer to, <laughs> I'm uncomfortable, I disagree, you don't agree with me, I don't like what you're saying, you're the wrong race, yeah. you don't know your location in yeah. this uh, in this kind of ladder of oppressions, right? That that. That is not what we mean, right? And in order, in order to experience the joy that you're speaking of and inviting us into, it includes growing our container's capacity to be with the pain, to be with the darkness. And I, these are your words. What can you tell me? Well, how can you further elucidate this radiant truth? I'm so happy you asked me that because that's really like a lot. That's what I think about the most right now is about truth. Mm-hmm. I even say to people like, don't talk to me about diversity and inclusion. Talk to me about the truth because the truth is we are all here, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, it's not the truth to say, Oh, we need to, we need to include people. No, we are all, we're here already. You don't have to include me for me to be here. I'm here. You need to turn around and be honest about what's up. Right. And so, like, my whole conversation is about can we just tell the truth and can people um, relax their needing to be right enough to consider that what my experience of the truth is and your experience of the truth might be different? Because, like, the story I tell in the the thing is about, like, this this man who, who said a terrible word to me when I was a little kid. And I'm like, somebody taught him that. Somebody taught him to call me a little girl, a terrible name. And -hmm. for him, that is the truth about, that was the truth about me in that moment. But in order for us to have this, this sense of joy for all people, we actually have to put all the truths on the table and look at them all. We need to be able to say, yes, this, this is what happened in your home, and this is what happened in my home. Here are the stories that my ancestors lived through. Here are the stories that my parents told me. Here are the books that I read. Here are the, here's the history. You know, one of the biggest pet peeves that I have right now is the fact that the curriculum that children learn in school is just straight up lies. It's just straight up like, y'all are not telling these kids the truth. Like, what if, forget everybody else, what if everybody who was born right now and we could commit to teaching them the whole truth from now until the time that they were 18. And like, what would that do to shift the planet? Well, what would that do? Like, forget forget auntie whoever and Mr. So-and-so down the street. Like, you could just live in your, in your own little bubble telling yourself these lies for the rest of your life. But what if every child that was born got a real education that told the whole truth about the history of humanity, particularly in this country, and we just allowed them space to process it? And to decide what that meant for us and what it means for them and how they want to shape the future based on what they what they have seen. And I just think it would I want I I wish I could do that. I want to do that really badly. (laughs) Well, I I think in some ways you are right. And this this. Yes, I I, I feel it. The other thing that I think is important to say is that the thing that makes truth difficult truths in particular um bearable like i'm going to keep going back to this notion of like doing your work like doing your personal spiritual emotional work because like i said before everybody wants to be 
wants to feel like they belong, which means mm-hmm. that as in life, as we struggle, we are fighting whatever it is that we think about ourselves that is the, our version of the opposite of belonging. So whether we feel like we're not good enough, we're not worthy, we're going to die alone, we're gonna, like whatever that thing is that we all have, like that's the thing that comes up if you really go underneath it when people have these conversations and don't want to tell the truth. Because they don't want to face their deepest, darkest secret fear that is their version of the opposite of belonging. And so, like, for me, the work that I have done just around, like, vulnerability, like Brene Brown, the center of my whole entire life for two years, right? <laughs> Learning that if I experience it, if I experience something that is harmful or difficult, <clears throat> whether that be the smallest thing or the biggest thing, like, it doesn't, the pain I experience, the dismay, the sorrow, whatever it is, does not have to equal anything about my being, it's not a, it's okay. not a it's not a, a declaration of being it's just an experience like i in this moment have i feel ashamed right now that does not mean i am a person a shameful person or that i'm not good enough or i'm not whatever and then we don't if we can't do that then we can't have honest conversations we can't if we don't know how to manage our own spiritual emotional health individually then the conversations that we need to have across race class gender so on and so forth are not possible because we won't be able to get through them just as people because we're at the end of the day people with egos and experiences and feelings and then we don't know how to have the hardest most complex conversations that ever existed (laughs) we're not going to make it through and we're going to keep in this space of us and them and my story is better than yours and you're stupid and and whatever you are that you don't think i think one of the things that, that, that comes up for me is we are all so longing to belong, right? Yes. Uh, but, but we don't, we're scared of the vulnerability implied. Yes. And so we have, like, the kind of belonging that we construct is actually quite brittle, right? Yeah, absolutely. So part of what happens, you know, I call this kind of moment in, in, in this moment in, in social justice space, I call it movement fundamentalism, right? It, <laughs> and it, it's very much like a church fundamentalism That's that right. I grew up in. It feels the same, it tastes That's the same, right. it looks the same. That's right. And what you end up having is actually people that desperately want to belong shooting out these flares to tell everybody that they're down, right? Yeah. And so you throw you throw the, all the keywords out, like white supremacy, right? Yeah. Like and patriarchy, and and all of these things are things that we need to contend with. But the way in which we're holding them is actually making everyone scared to say the wrong thing because right. the belonging right. is not deep enough. It's right. brittle. It's at this level of of abstraction, right? It's at this level of abstraction and this level that is not comfortable with feeling, with the discomfort of being in a space that we need to like open up to in order to move through. Yeah. Uh, Another one along this idea of like feeling what we need to feel is the idea that we cannot, because we have a culture that doesn't contend with things like grief. No, we're terrible at that. We cannot actually face the fact that we are living through the sixth extinction, right? And there's grief implied in a planet 
that is losing species in a way that has not happened for hundreds of thousands of years. And if we had the capacity to open up our container, right, to face the ache in our personal life, to face the ache in our histories, and to face the ache in what we're living through right now, then potentially we could then find the wisdom to turn towards what is happening. Yes. I mean, I, sp- I spent some time um, with Taj James over the weekend and we were talking about this very thing as we were at an environmental conference. And it was um, it was a strange space to be in because this is the conversation that you just had is not the conversation that was being had at that conference. It was really very tactical and it was bothering me because I'm like, there's there's way more to this conversation that we should be having that is really needs to get under this tactical conversation. And one of the things that Taj said to me is like, people um, are trying to manage and fight and fix and all this. And like, really, in this moment, the thing to do is get to the place where we can thrive to be able to process all the feelings, all the emotions, all the truths and be able to thrive because if we try to fix it and we try to make it, like that is how you don't make it. Mm. The only way that you can be even have a potential of making it is if you decide to thrive and you do the work to be able to thrive and then you might be able to get over the ledge. But if you just are trying to like fight, 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 fight. Like that is the way to lose. That is the way to not make it through. That is the way to not be present to what is happening in such a way that you actually can survive it. Mm, this is beautiful. What is coming to me is something I've been I've been working with and teaching a lot. It's the idea of state story strategy, right? And so the way I speak of it is, Let's say you are in an argument with a love partner, right? Uh, just because I want something we can all be kind of familiar with uh, at some point in our lives, right? And and that's the place in which we go to our triggered places. And our you know, that's like mm-hmm. almost what partners do. They trigger each other. You know, yeah. Sometimes it could be a parent or a sibling, right? Like those relationships that are like your trigger points. Yeah. And so your immediate desire is to get out of it, right? So you're strategizing your way out, but you're strategizing your way out from a place of contraction or smallness, right? You're operating from your lizard brain and and this the, the reptilian brain, the one that asks, to, yeah. is it food or am I food? That's all, <laughs> that's all that your strategy is limited by your state, right? Mm-hmm. And so the idea here is that you first change your state. Right? Whether that's like moving your body, going for a run, like whatever it is that would would get you into a different state. And then that's, I think, what you and Taj were talking about. Like, how do you shift your state, right? Because in this kind of small, contracted, angry, resentful, scared state, we can't strategize smartly. Ever. Um, First, you change your state. Then, after you change your state, what we've been talking about, Anasa, you change your story. Right? right, and changing that story means you take the victim out of it, right? Yeah, because the story that you were telling is one in which something is happening to you. You have no responsibility, you have no role, you, you have are no power, no power, right? After you change your state, 
after you change your story, mm-hmm. then you're capable for a, di- from a, for a different kind of strategy. And you can change your condition. That is right. That mm-hmm. is right. Mm-hmm. It is so evident to me. I have witnessed uh, uh, over the years, I have witnessed the way in which you come to that over and over again. Mm, thank I, you. I, yes, yes. I've seen you in spaces. I see the way you come into your body, mm-hmm. right? And like I, there's tension, there's whatever happening, and I see you kind of moving through that and over and over again, and opening mm-hmm. up to love, right? <laughs> Finding the joy in it, even in, even in some difficult spaces that we've been in together. It's my superpower. It's a gorgeous one. Thank, <laughs> you. Thank you for your generosity with that. Thank you. I mean, you know, it's like um, everybody, I can't take credit for it because it's like really is a, a divine gift that I have that I've, I've cultivated for sure and grown and learned how to use it. But I, that's not something that I did on purpose. It was something, it's a way of being that I was born with. And I think it was because it's what I needed to have to walk in this, in this life the way that I do and to be able to do the work that I do and to teach the things I'm supposed to be here to teach. Like love is the requirement for the life that I was, that I'm being asked to live Mm. by the God that I serve. And so I don't, I mean, I, I hear that a lot about my capacity and you make me feel like somebody loves me. I know, but it's not me. Like, I can't take credit for that. It's really like, and I'm so grateful because it's like, I could have been born being able to write concertos or being able to do like, you know, math. But I, I wasn't, <laughs> I was mm. born learn, knowing how to love people. That's what Amen. I was born knowing. And um, it's like the best. It's so it's so good because that that thing that people feel when I'm in the room with them, I get to feel it too, and I get to feel it first. Yes. And it's like so. It's like so fun and so juicy and so wonderful. It's beautiful. It's actually it's a place where you and I meet. That's right. It's a place where you and I meet. It's definitely <laughs> gorgeous. I think we're we're twin spirits in that way. And I like the way you name it. I like the way you name it. Like, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. Every morning I've been been, uh, reclaiming prayer, right? Because, you know, I've done so much like meditation over the last couple of years, which I still do. And, you know, I love it and I do it. But I think what happened over time with that practice is I, over time, somehow I slipped off simply getting on my knees right. and praying. Right. And one of the prayer, as I start my prayer in the morning, I thank the goddess, right? For that, for, for being born mm-hmm. like this, right? Mm-hmm. For, having, for be, being born capable of loving, mm-hmm. right? For knowing how to love, you know? It's, it's, right. it's not about credit. It takes cultivation. It does. But, it, but it's, but it's something we, we came with it. <laughs> we came here with this. Yeah, I I have a couple of kind of relatively quick questions that I ask. Yes, at the end of the podcast, but I didn't know. Is there anything else you wanted to make sure that we know? Anything you want to make sure that we feel or hear uh, as we move towards no, the cross? I don't think so. Okay, I don't think so. I think we got it all. Mm. If I I don't know, but I I have the feeling of completion, yeah. so I'm gonna go with that because I trust it. It's a it's a beautiful feeling. I feel I have a feeling of completion. I have a feeling of connection. I have a feeling of mm-hmm. grace. I, you know, looking at you on the screen, I kind of feel I'm basking in your light and your beauty and your oh, goodness. And I'm grateful for it. I'm honored by it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so there's two questions I like to ask at the end of this podcast, and 
The first one is, the first one is a person, I ask it personally, but it's not just for me. Mm-hmm. Um, in this time, in mm-hmm. which kind of, the, not kind of, the ugliness of patriarchy uh, <laughs> has become visible to those mm-hmm. of us that they don't want to see it. Because women, of course, they've not, they do be knowing it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, they kind of, Total exposing of a culture that allows it, that nurtures it, that feeds power to it. Right, this Me Too moment uh, is something that, that that we're having to contend with, right? And uh, yes. and and I come into the inquiry as somebody that's been part of that, right? And, yes. I, and I think of this question and I, and, and this yes. work as the work, the work of atonement, right, for my yes. own mistakes and my own roles. And, and a question that I'd like to ask of, of a powerful, uh, a radiant uh, goddess woman such as yourself, <laughs> you know, what would you say to men? Like, what should men do? What, what should <laughs> men know as we yes. want to be, those of us that want to be better, yes. right? Those yes. of us that want to meet this moment as it needs to be met. I'm so happy you asked me that. Um, so I think this is like the, my core belief under all the other things that I've ever said. This is what I really believe is that most, if not all of the things that we face that we want to transform are due to a lack of balance between the masculine and the feminine. Yes. And I want to, I want to stress that I said masculine and feminine and not male and female. Because it's not about gender, it's about energetics. And so if you can see that the entire galaxy universe, galaxy of galaxies of everything is made up of a balance or a possible balance between masculine and feminine energy. And when that balance is there in the macro and the micro, think about fractals, like it's in everything, right? Right then that is, that is where we find our bliss. Now, when we talk about gender and we talk about um, the hatred of women as the embodiment of the feminine, then that is where the imbalance comes. And I don't know where that came from. I don't know who decided. I don't know who perpetuated this idea that femininity and therefore women as the embodiment of femininity was bad or wrong or something, but I'm sure it came out of somebody being afraid and deciding like, oh, I'm afraid, I feel weak, I feel vulnerable. Let me lean into this part of me that feels like it could smash something. Let me lean into this part of me that feels like it can protect something. Let me lean into this part of me that feels like it can dominate and keep me from being dominated. And so what I want men to know is that the most important thing that you can do is to find the spaces of femininity, nurturing, loving, softness in yourself and nurture and protect that. Mm. Acknowledge that. Mm. Be that. And find the balance in you because when you understand it better from a visceral, personal point of view, then you can see it differently in other people. And the things that you do to perpetuate misogyny or to perpetuate homophobia or to perpetuate the killing of the earth will dissipate because then you will be able to love the part that part of you in everyone because really all you're doing is hating that part of yourself out loud in the world. 
So I would encourage men to heal, to seek the feminine within, to love it, to understand it, to be able to figure out how to integrate it into their full self. Because it's there, whether you want to acknowledge it or nurture it or not, it's there, sitting there, right? there, looking at you every day. Lean into it and love it. So you can love everything else. I, I said at this conference the other day, the thing that has us kill the earth is the same thing that has us enslave people and rape people and pillage and genocide and all that. And all we need to, all is so simple. It's just like, learn how to love your whole self and you won't have to be violent against the people who reflect the part of yourself that you hate. Anasa, you are a gift. And uh, the truth of what you're speaking it's so deeply resonant and it's it's a it's another affirmation of this this connection this link that we have mm-hmm. uh, because yeah that, i i feel like that's my own that's that's my own vocation and how i look at it too and you, you know over the, the years i've been working with tantric practices and mm-hmm. so much of it is about working with the, those energies and one of the things one of my teachers says is you know the man, one of the roles of the man in the, in becoming a tantrika is uh-huh. to become feminine uh-huh. before the goddess, right? right. To become, and it, it is in in, in and in a way that actually awakens and makes him capable and makes of holding the masculine. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, That's and, right. And, and, just, and just to maybe correct myself here, because I said you know in these traditions they speak man and woman because they're so old and. They're not understanding a lot of the things that, that you just mentioned, which is it's not about the gender, right? It's about, yeah. yeah but but the, but I think the question I asked was referring, yeah, referring to masculine identified men in yeah. the, I condition as men. So, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I have sort of the last question, and this is a this one requires it invites a little time travel. Yes, my it, favorite. I, Let's go. <laughs> It's got light touch facilitation, so you know it has a little consent. Some, some, some consent is required. You gotta right? be you, Jabron. You gotta be yes. you. <laughs> so the invitation then is for you to travel mm-hmm. uh, forward ten years mm. Uh, mm-hmm. and to picture yourself, visualize yourself, assuming that what you're working on right now, right, both in the world and inside yourself, that. Lots of it has indeed been accomplished. Mm-hmm. That you are and have become much of what you're trying to become. Mm-hmm. That your engagement with your own evolution has been successful, mm-hmm. right? So, you, I don't need you to describe that to me, but I want you to like see, <laughs> tell me if you can if you can visualize yourself. It makes me so happy. I'm so giddy just even being like, I'm, yes, yes, I like this. Let's do and so then, then, then back back to the time travel tip. That you, that version of mm-hmm. you, can now come here, mm-hmm. right? And give you and us some advice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> give us some advice. Yes. What would that advice? What What are those words that ten year from now you has for you, and for us, and for me? Yes. Right now. These vices, you already know who you are. And you already know mm. who you're becoming, so go ahead and do it. Mm. Why? What are you waiting 10 years for? I you could have been doing this out here. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Thank you for that affirmation. Mm-hmm. That sounds mm-hmm. great to me. 
do you want to tell us anything before we say goodbye about how people can find you? Is there sure. a website? I mean, we'll write it down in the show notes, but let them hear from your voice, like your projects, like anything you want to leave us with before we say yeah, goodbye. Yeah, I, um, I have a lot going on. Um, a lot of really good, juicy, wonderful things. I actually have a podcast too. Yes, you do. It's called The Big We. So, you know, there's things happening all the time in my world and in my mind. And as I take my own 10 year plus from now advice of do it now, I'm probably going to even be doing more of it. So um, you can go to my website. It's just AnastaTroutman.com. It's super simple. I'm also at AnastaTroutman on all the socials on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. So I'm, I'm pretty accessible. You know, send me an email, send me a DM, tweet me, say hi. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I would, I love, I love people so much. Oh my God. I love yes, people so much. I love all of you so much. And so, like, it's not, it's, it's like, um, fun for me for people to reach out and to come up to me after a talk or something and ask for a hug or hug, just want to hug me. And like, I love that stuff. So, um, don't be shy if you come across me. Um, let's, let's talk, let's hug, let's love each other. Thank you so much, Anasa, for your life path. For this time, I feel blessed by it. (laughs) And uh, I can't wait for more. Me too. Me too. I can't wait to see you. It's been too long. Let's make it happen. Yes. Let's make it happen. Lots and lots of love. Many blessings.